0: We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night. I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It
1: was you, Charles. Hi my name's Tom Jennings and this is 24 Frames Cast. Um, I'm not gonna kind of spend too much time going on. This is gonna I was gonna do a huge kind of criterion catch-up episode and to be brutally honest it was so long it was absolutely ridiculous and I think it would have got a little bit boring so I've decided to break it up into monthly parts again. So this is gonna be a look at the February 2013 releases and there will be a few more of these to follow in kind of quick succession because they have all been recorded so hopefully we'll get them out as quickly as we possibly can. So without any further ado, let's take a look at the releases. OK, so first up is spine number 645, which is the 1958 film, The Ballad of Nayama. Now, what do you do with an aged population? Well, a wise man once said that you don't judge a society on how well those at the top are. You judge it by how those on the lower end are doing. And it's definitely food for thought because the Ballad Nayama perhaps would give us a rather bleak view of a society that has gone very, very wrong. The film is set in a small Japanese village about 200 years ago and the inhabitants of it have a rather novel way of making sure that they don't have to care for the old people because they use a local custom which entails the old dears being taken up a mountain at the age of 70 and left to starve to death. And are the kindly old folks treated with respect and awe during the latter end of their life? Well, no, in fact, they are mocked for having more teeth than they should, and in one case end up forced being to go up the mountain by their own children. Now, the film focuses on a kind old lady called Orin, who has reached the ripe age of 69. Now, she's quite happy to go up the mountain, the Tichin Narayama, and before she goes, she wants to make sure everything is fine for her son and new wife. She's even kind to her horrible grandson, who does the aforementioned mocking of having too many teeth. Her poor friend Mata is also nearing his time. He doesn't want to to go, although his own son is pretty adamant that he is regardless of whether he wants to or not. Now, the film is presented as a piece of Kabuki theatre being shot almost entirely on a studio location and featuring a sung narration. And does this kind of set distract? Well, not at all. Indeed, I was in constant amazement of it. Like Dogville, the clear artifice quickly goes away. So much so I was actually even hardly aware of it. Helped in part, of course, through the things like the running water that go through the set and the incredible-looking real trees and houses. Film theatre has become increasingly popular with regular beanbacks to my local art house cinema, which by all counts do a very decent trade. Now, for the record, The Ballad of Naam was not based on a play, it was actually adapted from a novel. And it's The Marriage of Mediums, therefore, that is quite visionary, perhaps, and down to director Kishuki Kishata, who was one of the most experimental and prolific directors in Japan during the 50s and 60s. He was also the first director in Japan to make a film in colour with Carmen Falls in Love. The Ballad of Nayama has a startling visual palette, with director of photography Hikira Kusada has the creative freedom on the set to do as he please. It does not look realistic in the strictest sense, and nor does it have any intention of doing so. Indeed, during the course of a scene, the light will change dramatically, such as one scene when... Orin's grandson mocks her for having teeth. The, suddenly the light goes from a dusky to a more ominous dark blue in the space of a few seconds as she starts holding her teeth. The moment will have greatest significance later, but it is the blight the fact that the character has just undergone a moment that with a pound impact later on in the film. It's not subtle and it does draw attention to the artifice, but again it's not about realisation, it is about literal visualisation of how characters are feeling. I particularly enjoyed some of the surrealness these lighting effects had in one scene the characters are bathed in a kind of greenish-blue tinge, and in that respect the film has so much to offer if you are interested in the kind of how cinematography works. There is very little cutting within scenes, and I think this type of cinema brings with it its own grammar. And although... I think there's obviously limitations to, to the set and what that has on the way in which the film is made. It doesn't necessarily mean that the camera kind of remains overtly static. Look carefully and you'll notice the set is used in the most creative ways for dollying in and around action. A strategically placed path is the perfect method to move closer into actors. Now, the image often has quite a surprising depth of feel to it as well, with trees and other objects in the foreground, the actors in the middle and impressive matte work for the background. What truly got me, however, is how sad I found the film to be. It does have its lighter touches, for sure, between Oren and Titeshi, but understanding the film, the film is at times quite hard to watch. I was kind of reminded in some respects of Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark, as Kinshata explores the sheer cruelty of life in this village. Oren is mocked, as I've already said before, having so many teeth, and in the film's most harassing moments, smashes her teeth against a rock to better please her grandson and be more acceptable to the village as a whole. Conformity through smashing one's teeth out is a pretty harsh way of looking at the world and it is here that I began to think about the subtext of the film. Was Orin somehow representative of older, better times in which elders were treated with far more respect? Was the village somehow representative of the new post-war Japan with capitalism pushing youth away from traditions of the past? And was this ritual that Orin was so willing to take part in a condemnation of ancient traditions out of touch with modernity? The truth is, I know too little about Japanese culture to really definitively offer an opinion on the subject, but perhaps there is a clue at the end of the film. The final shot sees a modern day location with a trainer going through a station and a sign reads, abandonment of old people. Now it may well be a monument to the likes of old Orin who have died in this situation, but or indeed it may be a challenge, a social call to arms to address the issue of how people look after the older population. Certainly, it is thought-provoking in modern society is the most vulnerable who are pushed to the sides. Caring for our elders is nearly always along with conversations about costs and the effort involved in doing so. The ballad Nayama suggests that how we treat the vulnerable is a direct reflection of us. Orin's son is dutiful, yet perplexingly he is allowing his mother to take part in this terrible ritual. He may not agree, but is also complicit in allowing it to happen. It's not an essay film in many regards. It doesn't offer neat solutions to demand action. Instead, I think it encourages viewers to think inward. I have regrets about my own attitude towards my grandparents. I should have called them more. Well, I could argue that they never called me, which they didn't. Should I have called them more anyway regardless? Well, perhaps. And who, I wonder, will be there for me in times to come. It's all very uncomfortable, and like any decent film, the Balladinae doesn't shy away from challenging its audience to have a decent think about themselves. Overall, this is a more bare bones criterion release. Um I would just say a quick word on the transfer, it's absolutely brilliant um to look at. It's in a 2 three five aspect ratio and um I really enjoyed it. I think it's a film which is perhaps more for um well, I don't think it's for everyone necessarily, but I, I do think it's a film for people who kind of who, who who are quite interested in really sort of something a little bit different and a bit experimental. Certainly its story isn't kind of particularly challenging. Um, to watch, it's not you know perplexingly kind of impenetrable. I, I think it's just a very stylistic and um, not exactly you run of the mill uh, film. Especially the fact that most of it is on set, and um, really the only kind of extras we get are a trailer and a teaser trailer, and a booklet featuring an essay by the critic Philip Kent. So not one of the most complete Criterion packages, but certainly a very interesting film and one I was particularly taken with. Okay so next up we had spine number 646 which was the Darden M Brothers 2011 film The Kid with a Bike. Now last year there were two Darden brother Brothers films in the collection Rosetta and The Promise and I wouldn't say so much that I found these films to be entertaining in the purest sense but I did find them fairly gripping nonetheless. I, the brothers have a kind of fluid visual style clearly belying their kind of documentary roots and I detected an air of Ken Loach in their social concern. These were films about people who fall between the gaps in society. It rang particularly true for me having worked in this kind of environment and I've had contact with young people whose lives echo those of the characters in these films. The kid with a bike kind of goes down a similar path as Rosetta and The Promise in terms of its subject matter when we have the story of a young boy called Cyril whose father has abandoned him and sold his beloved bike and left him at a local children's home Desperate to find him, he tries to escape at every available opportunity, and one day he literally falls into Celine, a kindly hairdresser, who agrees to let him stay with her at weekends. Cyril continues his quest for his father and soon finds himself falling into the wrong crowd when he meets Wes, a local drug dealer. Now, I think it's rare that directors like the Dudens they spend so much time in a very kind of similar world. Um, if you kind of compare to like Danny Boyle, you don't really know what you're going to get with one of his films. They're kind of set here, there, and everywhere. And you know, All credit to him. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy his films so much. But the Darden brothers, mo- most of their films take place in the same town and uh, a small place called Céline, and have a consistent kind of visual grammar. There's no scores, no stars, and a, r- a running time of about roughly 90 minutes. Yet these are all kind of very varied stories. Yes, they have similar thematic elements within them, yet they are deeply personal and individual in their own right. And at the give of a bike, I think deviates slightly um, from many respects from the brothers Norm. On the one hand, it is set predominantly in summer and the visual palette is bright, colourful and dare I say warm. It features a smattering of diegetic music and by casting Cécile de France um, as the role of Samantha, I suppose the closest they've ever come to really kind of recruiting a star to be in one of their films. Yet these are not reflective. I don't think of a whole kind of sales shift in the brother's work. I have not read or indeed heard them state anything that they have a set style anyway. So the kid of the bike still feels very much like a Darden and brother's films, and my overriding film feelings on the film were that it was quite unique in many ways and um, Cecile is an extremely Cyril is an extremely challenging child and the Darnold brothers don't beg you to love him. They don't sentimentalise him or shoehorn wider political issues into his signif- into his um, situation. He's not kind of the victim of the global epidemic crisis or savage cuts to public spending. Instead, he's a victim of someone far m- something far more immediate and an issue that has been with us since the beginning of time, really, which is kind of crap parenting. And the effects on this and a young person are all too apparent. Sil is emotionally destroyed by what has happened. He is constantly running and frantically searching for his father. It's no real spot um, spoiler to say that he does actually find him quite early on in fact and the reconciliation is neither profound or particularly moving. The simple fact of the matter is Cyril worships him because he is his father and like us I think he, he believes that his father should act in a certain way, i.e. be his father and he has absolutely no interest in doing this and the tragedy of the situation is all too apparent, and Samantha's motivation for helping Cyril and acting the way she does, or as much as you know, Cyril allows her to kind of act, is it's never really explained why why she's doing. it. There's no backstory is offered. There's no other reason than the fact that she's a kind person, and Cyril even asks her, and she cannot herself answer why she's doing what she does. And I think it's in a sense a reflection of the. Of I suppose of humanity yin and yang dynamic the boy's father has no interest and yet a total stranger with nothing to gain offers to fill the void and her reward um, will be nothing for helping Cyril She she doesn't get anything out of it really other than the fact that it's a kind act and she's a kind person and in this respect I think the film is I think it's highly depressing and also kind of almost a, a joyful exploration of people. I've heard in several circles that this is a kind of a fairy tale and although there's nothing fantastical about the film, Samantha is exactly that type of character you see in those types of films. I wanted, to, I wanted her to appear in kind of Rosetta and The Promise, you know, and go in there and be this kind of shining light whose presence elevates the struggling of another person. Yet Samantha is not made into a saint in the film. She does what she does because a young boy asked her for help, you know, do we even need to know why she's doing it? And I, I I would contest not, and I admire that type of filmmaking more as the kind of pressing concern at hand is Cyril, And at a typically brisk running time, the film isn't concerned really with the kind of the whys and the hows. And I think there's kind of an urgency about it, which isn't in lieu of characterization. It, for me, instead makes the film form, film more believable and indeed facilitates a far honest emotional reaction to it. I mean, I, I greatly admire the films of Ken Burns at times and quite voluntarily... I let him kind of play me emotionally like a fiddle and the the kind of the Darden Brothers watching I I was watching Ken Burns films before I watched this and it it really amazed me really because the Darden Brothers don't seem to kind of elicit this type of response through kind of manipulation of film language and technique it comes far more naturally and as in the case of all these films I've found that they can linger quite long in my mind and I found the tone of this one to be far more hopeful than I'd experienced in, in their previous works it, it, it's, it's an unpredictable film and without giving anyway any spoilers at one stage I thought it was going to veer into kind of something slightly more melodramatic um, certainly in its conclusion before kind of reining itself back in and in, in a way I think I should have known better than to be concerned that the film was kind of veering into melodrama because you know, I've entered a stage of my life now where kind of the conformity and predictability of Hollywood leaves me more and more alienated than ever before and I was perhaps concerned that the kind of the Darden brothers were trying to kind of like not so much sell out, but kind of perhaps becoming a little bit influenced by this type of crap. And um, it's certainly not the case at all. And the Kiwi Bite rewards those, I think who enjoy challenging cinema. It's, it is a modern fairy tale um, yet in the hands of the Darden brothers feels, feels more kind of fantastical. And on the basis, it's one of those kind of occasional good news stories that you hear about that sometimes, you know, tends to find their way through the misery in the world. And it's measured and quite flying suggests that Samantha and Cyril will have a future together. Is you know, Cyril going to be the world's best behaved child? Well, probably not. You're left with a sense that something good has come from their meeting. Samantha might not have been looking for this in her life, but now Cyril is certainly part of it. And life, for the most part, isn't about knowing what is around the corner. And I think the kid with the bike seems to capture a kind of random moment in a sleepy town rather brilliantly. It's familiar territory for a film, you know, Trofeo has been there with like the 400 blows, Spielberg has been making a living out of the lonely boy story for years, but in terms of what I've seen from the Darden ends, yes it is lighter both literally and figuratively, and yes it is by no means any less challenging or schmaltzy, it is for want of a better word honest as well as being deeply touching to boot, by no means a masterpiece, but a very good film nonetheless. okay so next up we arrive at spy number 647 which of Edia kazan's 1954 film on the waterfront okay so how exactly do you for define a classic it seems an easy question although with a medium as objective as film and indeed art in general this relatively simple question can throw up some rather complex issues Take, for example, modern art. I've lost count of the amount of times I've walked through an exhibition and been reminded of the type of nonsensical doodles I used to make as a child. Yet one man's doodles are another man's masterpiece. I am convinced that if you framed a plastic bag and wrote bollocks on it, gave it to a bunch of art critics and told them it was Damien Hirst, they would applaud and say how devastating a piece of anti-capitalist sentiment it was. Tell them that you did it and they would shrug and probably tell you to fuck off. Now... So when someone tells me that they saw Iron Man 3 and thought it was a masterpiece, who am I to tell them they are wrong? Armin White has made a career out of backing films that most people scoff at. Read his impassioned defence of Transformers' Revenge of the Fallen. Some say it was trolling or being contrarian for the sake of it, but what if he actually does mean it? There is no right or wrong, after all just opinion, which of course we're all entitled to. However, On the Waterfront is a masterpiece of filmmaking, I don't honestly see how anyone could think that it was not, but really, what makes a classic? Well, hopefully, in this kind of summarisation of On the Waterfront, I will go to some way explaining how I consider a film to be a masterpiece. Now, I first saw the film when it played on a late night to BBC retrospective on the films of Ilya Kazan, and... There was something different about it I found, the grainy black and white image, the sense that you could feel the cold almost coming off the screen. And it wasn't a pretty film in the conventional sense, yet something about it made me kind of fall in love with it. I'd just seen Goodfellas and I felt that these characters from the film were cut from the same block as they were on the waterfront, although the film seemed real in a sense it was still a Hollywood enough with its villains and its melodrama. I rushed out and I picked it up on video and when it came out on DVD and now of course this excellent Blu-ray from Criterion and and I've said it before that when you buy a film from one format to the next I think it's a pretty good sign that it means something quite profound to you. On the Waterfront really is the perfect marriage of the talents of everyone involved in it and one of those rare examples whereby it's actually hard to find any fault in any aspect of it. Based on a serial. A series of articles known as Crime on the Waterfront," which chronicled the criminality rife on the waterfronts of Manhattan and Brooklyn, director Elia Kazan and screenwriter Bud Schilberg crafted a story of murder, betrayal, family, loyalty and love. Kazan, one of the founder members of the Actors Studio in 1947, was himself an accomplished stage actor and director. His group normally put on plays dealing with social issues and introduced a new generation of actors with what would be called The Method, An acting style that encouraged people to look deeper into the psyche of their characters to inhibit their world. It's a style of acting that to this day constantly amazes us with stories of dedication of those who follow it. A friend of mine was at an airport and actually walked into Christian Bale at the time he was preparing for the fighter. Aghast at his appearance, Bale reassured him by saying it was okay and that he was merely preparing for a role and that he was not eating as much as he used to and my friend stood there absolutely in awe of this. Yeah, aside from just physical appearance, method acting has given us some truly some of the greatest performances of all time. Among the school's graduates were Carl Morden and Brando, both of whom, of course, would feature on onwards front. Of course, Kazan's name has forever been spoiled by the Huck inquiries. Now, for many to this day, there is a genuine sense that what he did was morally abhorrent. And of course, whatever reason he did what he did, it, it does annoy me slightly when people today seem so vitriolic in their disapproval of him because I sort of wonder you know, how wronged have you been by what he did and let's be honest worse things have happened and continue to happen I do recall when Kazan received the, his honorary Oscar the audience was divided some stood and applauding others just sat applauding whilst others simply sat staring stony faced like Nick Nolte being one although I wonder if he was simply too drunk or on crack to really have a clue what was going on now screenwriter Bob Sh- Bob- bud Schilberg has a slight advantage over those in the industry as his dad was a famous producer also however it doesn't matter who your dad is if you can't write then you don't have a chance and clearly he could and soon found himself having a successful career in his own right one of his other claims to fame was arresting hitler's favorite filmmaker lenny rusenthal who um so she could contestify at war crimes tribunals and uh I think it's his work though on Auto, on the waterfront and that is what he's most famous for and of course the screenplay that would win him an Oscar now it is a script that Kazan along with his actors chiselled into a masterpiece and it is with a cast including Eve Marie Saint as Edie in her first screen role Jay, uh, Lee J Cobb who plays Johnny Friendly and other actors studio Lumina, such as Cole Martin playing Father Barry Rod Steiger as Charlie and the brother of Terry Malone who of course is played by Marlon Brando I'm not, I, I can't really think of a film in recent memory that has such an incredible cast as this, and no, The Avengers is not an answer to that. But although this is known as a Brando film, going back to again, I was amazed how drawn to, to all the characters I was. And many of the characters were based on real-life people who Schuberg interviewed over several weeks. He also attended a commission that was set up to look into the crime on the waterfront and use m- much of what he saw in the film. Boris Kaufman was brought in as Director of Photography and the younger brother of uh, Man with a Movie Camera Director, Ziza Vertoz. And this would be the first American film that he would, he would um, be Director of Photography on, and he would of course go on to work on the likes of 12 Angry Men also. And Bernard Herman, who is, the I suppose, the director's composer, as it were, um, is, is how I recently heard him described at a Mark Kermode film evening. And He's on board for soundtrack duties and in retrospect, I think this film it was it as if it, it, it was being made for Martin Scorsese later on in life. On the Waterfront tells the story of racketeering and corruption on the New York docks. The an investigation is gearing up into the workings of local hood Johnny Friendly. In the, he's the local crime boss who runs the dock and his psychic Charlie who manages the financial side of the gang dictate who works and when. Anyone who dares step out of line gets dealt with in the strict code of silence. The gang literally get away with murder. One brave yeah. soul is ready to stand up. Joey Dole, brother of Edie, and using Chisro's terrier as a ploy to coax him out, Joey is thrown to his death by the gang. Terry, wrapped with guilt and conflicted emotion, falls in love with Edie and must decide whether he stays silent and lets his brother and friends rule the docks or, with a little gentle coaxing from Father Barry, destroy the gang's monopoly. Now On the Waterfront is many things. It's a film of social conscience and when Hollywood was in the process of reinventing itself in the widescreen epic era it feels more like it should have been made by a kind of a Rosalina or a Bresson instead of, instead. It is indeed it is a piece of neo-American realism that in its own right and a film forged an entirely different creative furnace from what was going on at the time. Many watch as a kind of acting masterclass. The moment between Steiger and Brando with Schubert's forever quotable dialogue ringing in the ears through the ages. Some feel uncomfortable to praise Kazan as a director due to his past, but regardless, I still consider this to be his finest work. Kazan is a director who doesn't use canted angles, he has no, no box of tricks like a director like Orson Welles. Moreover, he is a master of performance, letting the camera step back and the action unfold. This to me has been the lasting appeal of On the Waterfront, and despite what is at stake and the brooding sense of anger and frustration of the characters that simmer along my abiding memory of of this film is how subtle a film it is. Kazana Schuberg established a world in which the local hoods are the kings of a very tiny, if very profitable kingdom. There is nothing glamorous about these men, they are not the type of gangsters who you want to be or have anything to do with. Instead they are nothing but bullies and Terry is the archetype of disappointment news used as a pawn by his brother and others to make a few dollars when in fact, as he says, he could have been a contender as a boxer. His wasted life has no honour and no real sense that it can go anywhere other than be sucked into the mire. Terry is a Hollywood hero in the most traditional sense and it's the film's marrying of melodrama and sense of realism that place in a kind of wilderness of its own from more predictable fare to something we may expect to see in Europe at the time. In the simplest possible way, it is a unique film that escapes general classification or a generic tag as such. and Schuberg do something that a great deal of many filmmakers don't. They create a world, and one that may look like a real one, and most of all on the waterfront was filmed on location, but a world where you can believe and and actually enthuses the characters' actions. We would assume that Edie and her father would be running to the police, yet the ancient codes that protect Johnny and the crew are in place. These men are despicable, yet are protected. I've always found myself surprised by how little I care for the police and the law in general. In the film, we don't want some Elliot Ness figure to break the doors. We want we want the people themselves to do it. And one person in particular, which is of course Terry. And in the film, you know, we ask ourselves really, you know, will Johnny and the crew be brought to justice? You know, will Terry find out who killed Charlie? I doubt it. But on the waterfront, isn't about happy endings and. The, the Victory of Law and Order, it's a film about a very specific right and wrong and a type of justice It doesn't fit with a conventional sense of resolution. In the age of the production codes, it's a subversive film in many regards. Terry may well win a battle, but clearly the war will continue. Does, you, does the film really leave a sense that everything is going to be fine everyone is going to live happily ever after? Well, not really. Crime has taken a kicking, but Johnny is neither dead or incarcerated. Now, when most people talk about On the Waterfront, they will, in, in many cases... Go on about the kind of the method acting and you know, Marlon Brando picking up a glove, and of course the famous and still incredibly moving, "I Could Have Been a Contender" speech with Charlie in the back of the cab. Now, I want to talk about the glove scene though in a little bit more detail, purely because I think everyone's kind of spoken about that the the previous scene way too much, and I thought it'd, it'd be nice to kind of focus on something slightly different. And It's a fairly innocuous scene in which Terry and Edie are walking along and in a completely unscripted moment, Eve-Marie Saint drops her glove and Brando bends down and picks it up. And yet rather give it back to her, he simply plays with it and carries on talking. And why all the fuss about this? Well, I think it's a moment that represents a rare instance in cinema where the relationship between the actor and the character and the director have reached a point in their creative relationship that has grown organically into something far more than was ever imagined in, in the script itself, I I would wager. And I, I think it's quite sad that later on in his career, I think Marlon Brando had become nothing, nothing more than a complete buffoon, really. Um, on, on the set on the island of Dr. Maru, he had his lines delivered to him via a radio earpiece that actually managed to pick up local police station. So... As Brando, once the once great actor of his generation, was rather bafflingly giving his colleagues dramatic updates as to what the local constabulary were up to. But I think going back here, Brando is the acting powerhouse. Working at the top of his game, Terry is essentially a child. His entire life has been up to this point a failure, a promising boxing career thrown away so that his brother and friends could make a few hundred dollars out of him. His work at the docks is a cushy life, yet those around him... His work at the docks is a cushy life to many extents because he does what he's told by Charlie and Johnny whilst others around him suffer. Now, he needs a break from all that, a chance to be a better person, yet in this moment, he's not the one who is in control. She is by virtue of fact that she is smarter, more morally upstanding and not intimidated by him in the least. And as they walk together in this scene, he is clearly nervous, riddled with guilt as the part he has played in her brother's death. Yet also the fact that he can and wants to be a better person. Now, when Edie drops the glove, the usual thing would be for the director to shout "Cut!" After all, he actually kind of momentarily disappears from the frame to actually retrieve it. And I dare say, where it kind of John Ford, William Wyler, David and even Billy Wilder, they would have called, that that call would have come. Yet Kazan was to get a different director, and Brando Rezepsut reappears with the glove, becomes an integral part of the scene. All, of course, totally unscripted. The first and the most obvious point to make is why does he not give the glove back? Well, because think about the character. Watch how Brando plays with it. He is, or at least his character, is nervous around her. He strokes it and moves it around like a child, but crucially does not give it back. It is an attempt to readdress the balance in some way to appear as he has some kind of semblance of control over what is unfolding. And it's as if this is giving him some kind of advantage over her. From a directorial point of view, it must have been... A moment of pure magic your lead actor has resisted the urge to stop the scene as have you and instead managed to think of a way in which to visually represent the relationship between the characters without having to add a single word of dialogue kazan's implicit trust in brando and the actor's total understanding of character and craft combine to produce what is still one of the most moving scenes in the entire film How this is not just about brando shoe because we need all the performances are top notch and I will talk about them in due course but I also want to take some time out to discuss Carl Malden now, Malden is not the type of typical Hollywood icon and he kind of kind of bucks a trend of the typical A-list star, I first became aware of him in Patton playing General Badley, and given I consider George C. E. Scott's performance in that film to be the best ever Malden pretty much holds his own as well now, I wouldn't say it's the second best performance ever but he certainly he, he, he certainly isn't overawed by Patton and it's it isn't harsh to say that he's not the prettiest of stars? You know, were that nose in space, NASA would probably send a probe to it. But of course, his acting skills and the humanity with which he injects into the character that make this such a memorable performance. Father Barry is not really there to kind of convert, in the traditional sense. He's not kind of an evangelical character out to spread the, the word of God to the good flock. Instead, indeed, he's quite like that. Most in the parish simply acknowledge him because that is the done thing. What he cannot abide, however, is the injustice of what happens at the docks, and this is really where he kind of preaches and kind of sermonizes to them. He wants these people to acknowledge the fact that they are being wronged and to do something about it. And I think Malden's performance is breathtaking, and the sheer level of conviction he displays. In my opinion, he is the true the film's true hero, and Kazan even explicitly states that as a man of a man of coffee, he's not immune from being hurt by the mob and Kazan resists the urge to overplay his bravery, he doesn't sanctify him and I don't think he becomes like this kind of like Christ-like saviour and of course this is because On the Waterfront it's not about extraordinary people it's about every man, every, you know, people are everyday people standing up for themselves and it's not something I do, do that often but I'm going to play um, what I consider to be my standout moment in the entire film and this actually had me in tears as I went back to go and watch it and I'm just going to let this play. And this is a scene after someone has been killed in the the hold of a ship. And Father Barry um, tries to kind of rally the men to see what is going on.
0: I came down here to keep a promise. I gave K.O. my word that if he stood up to the mob, I'd stand up with him. All the way. And now K.O. Dugan is dead. He was one of those fellas who had the gift of standing up, but this time they fixed him. Oh, they, they fixed him for good this time. Unless it was an accident, like Big Mac says. Some people think the crucifixion only took place on Calvary. They better wise up. Taking Joey Doyle's life to stop him from testifying is a crucifixion and dropping a sling on K.O. Dugan because he was ready to spill his guts tomorrow... that's a crucifixion! And every time the mob puts the crusher on a good man... tries to stop him from doing his duty as a citizen... it's a crucifixion! And anybody who sits around and lets it happen... keeps silent about something he knows has happened... shares the guilt of it just as much as the Roman soldier... who pierced the flesh of our Lord to see if he was dead. your church, father. Boys, this is my church. And if you don't think Christ is down here on the waterfront, you've got another guest coming. Get off the dark, father. I tell you, don't do that. Who said you on, boy? Let him finish. Every morning, when the hiring boss blows his whistle, Jesus stands alongside you in the shape-up. He sees why some of you get picked and some of you get passed over. He sees the family men worrying about getting the rent and getting food in the house for the wife and the kids. He sees you selling your souls to the mob for a day's pay. <laughs> the next bum that throws something deals with me, I don't care, he's twice my size. Now what does Christ think of the easy money boys who do none of the work and take all of the gravy? And how does he feel about the fellows who wear $150 suits and diamond rings? on your union dues and your kickback money. And how does he, who spoke up without fear against every evil, feel about your silence? Tell him about that! Just watch this. You see that? You want to know what's wrong with our waterfront? It's the love of a lousy buck. It's making love of a buck the cushy job more important than the love of man. It's forgetting that every fella down here is your brother in Christ. But remember, Christ is always with you. Christ is in the shape-up. He's in the hatch. He's in the unit. He's kneeling right here beside Dugan. And he's staying with all of you. If you do it to the least of mine, you do it to me. And what they did to Joey and what they did to Dugan, they're doing to you. And you. You. All of you. And only you. Only you, with God's help, have the power to knock him out for good.
1: I think what complements this scene is Kazan's direction at the bottom of the hold we have the f- father Barry looking up towards the heaven to make his pleas yet he's not talking to some divine figure he's just talking to the men and who can affect the change and adjust their reality and he's mocked and jeered and objects are thrown at him he does not for a second budge pleading with them to deliver themselves from the constraints of which they live under now Maud's performance during this scene is extraordinary I, I, sublime in fact I think in a film so full of famous moments this one it's hardly ever discussed and is more as a pity as it remains to me anyway. The moment in this film where I, I, I think... If, if you're not moved by this scene, I, 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 I don't... I, you, you can't have a heart. I, I, I think it's it's that good a piece of acting. I guess one of the things to talk about now is that the themes of On the Waterfront and obviously much has been made that Kazan had outed several former friends to the House of Un-American Act and in the an intervening years developed an attitude of defiance towards his detractors. And um, with this in mind, I think it's hard not to look at the character of Terry without considering Kazan, and Terry is subpoenaed to testify against his peers. Yet Terry's peers are his friends and even his family, and the waterfront is to some extent very much its own entity with established rules and norms. Yet it's also a criminal organisation, and in a very roundabout way, Kazan could as easily have shown his own situation as being that as the kind of the patriotic American simply doing, to aiding his government. Like Terry, Kazan did not did what he was asked although of course Terry seems far more noble in his actions and of course history has been hard on Kazan and although it's easy to vilify him it's also easy to assume that if you were in the exact same situation you would not have done what he did however I would wonder how honest we are being with ourselves if we assume that if we were put in the same situation we would have done any better. On the Waterfront does present a deeply warped version of the American Dream. Johnny and his organisations have the trappings of any other kind of corporation. A hierarchical command structure, a treasurer is legitimised by virtue of the fact that it is accepted by the norm. Those opposed to the system are in a minority and this is... Then a look at the real America, one ruled by corruptions and systems of injustice seldom challenged. Although the film has a kind of celebratory ending, I would contest that it does not overtly suggest that all is going to be well, or indeed that anyone in the film will be the recipient of any kind of officially sanctioned justice. The micro-revolution against authority has also echoes of a kind of workers' revolution, the dirty masses rising up against the pampered elite, and although on the waterfront primarily focused on the redemption of Terry, he does embody the masses' yearning to free themselves from injustice and inequality. But I think one of the the reasons why I, I'm so drawn to On the waterfront is, is is startling visually for a number of reasons, not least due to the fact that it's almost the polar opposite of what Hollywood was trying to do at the time. This was you know, this was the age of the widescreen, the epic, the cast of thousands, huge scores. Practically everything on the waterfront is not indeed it's a film that has look has that looks like a kind of Italian neo-realism movement from its visual cues and Boris Kaufman presents this part of the world as a cold, harsh environment and the black and white cinematography has a charcoal look to it. The film was shot in winter and the crisp air and the chills are there to see. In fact, the harsh coldness of the film is shown on the actors' faces. I think, because I it you you know, it, the elements turn them from actors into characters and I think that's entirely true. You could almost argue it's an ugly film, yet even directors like Antonio only made industrial landscapes with a kind of stark beauty and this happens here as, Kazan and Boris Kaufman don't necessarily romanticise the environment but instead almost let it speak for itself and I can kind of relate this to my own life really because my favourite part of Manchester was a piece of wasteland next to the canal and you can see the huge docks which once had kind of ships from all over the world coming to it which are now completely overgrown and there's this kind of mishmash of different buildings and lonely street makes street lights sorry. and it's kind of an eerie kind of strangely affecting place and it's what I see when I look out of the landscape of On the Waterfront and what better sheen shows us when Terry tells Edie he will he was partly responsible for her brother's death and we hear the environment, the birds, the ships, the wind, and as Father Barry watches on in the foreground, standing in the wasteland, we can see Terry and Edie talk and their conversation is inaudible to us, yet the world they inhabit, run down and broken kind of reflects the situation they are in and we don't need to hear what they're saying and as Edie lashes out at Terry and again the environment speaks volumes as a us of its kind of harshness and brutality now On the Waterfront when it came out swept the Oscars and it's a film that you can quote from all day and going back and seeing *Blue Blu-ray I was again struck by how magnificent a piece of cinema it is and I stress the word cinema it has an air of realism about it but On the Waterfront is still a piece of fiction and represents the best the medium can offer i think and from the dialogue to the performance to the direction to the music everything simply works and a masterpiece you know, i, I think of of course it is, is in one of the greatest films ever well yes I, I i could safely say that and you know so often we we, we confront with these lists you know it's the best film ever and declarations of you know perfection and all this kind of thing and and i i, I for once think that on the waterfront deserves that, that those kind of words used about it um I can't imagine anyone who who doesn't like this film, and I think it, it's fitting, really, what uh, Criterion have done with this package because it's a two DVD, a two Blu-ray package, three DVDs. I picked up the Blu-ray. This first things first, really, is the presentation. Um, you get two aspects of the film: a, a one eight five widescreen and one three three one full screen version. Both have given a four K digital resolution um, restoration, and they both look incredible. Um, there's a five point one um dts hd surround sound soundtrack on them um commentaries by richard skew and jeff young um uh, discussion between martin scorsese and critic kent jones really interesting um a documentary called Ilya kazan outsider which was made in 1982 that's a fascinating watch um another documentary on the making of the film interviews with eve marie saying just basically it's one of those um criterion packages that i think will probably stand the test of time as being the best ones ever and it's an incredible film, and I beseech you to seek this one out. Okay, so next up was spine number 648, which was jean rich and Edgar Morin's Chronicle of a Summer. Now, I first saw Chronicle of Summer when I was at university, and I think looking back, I wasn't really ready for the film then. And at the time, we had just been watching Godard, and I think you all know my opinions on him. And I found... I found the film to be, to be rather dull and ponderous, and that ever so overused word, pretentious. And in reality, I, I don't think I was mature enough to really think about these types of work in the context of which they need to be viewed. And really, kind of more for me, because Chronicle of a Summer is an experiment, and as the film shows, in the eyes of its makers, um, Roach and Marin, um, possibly a failed one at that, although I will address that issue a little bit later. And it's often cited as one of the most influential films ever made, and something that th- seems even more remarkable, considering that the people that made it might not have thought, you know, that it, it didn't even work in the first place. And it's a type of film that, from its very opening, I think immediately identifies itself as a film that is somewhat apart from anything else that really kind of came before, and its genesis can be traced back to 1959 when Marin and Roche served as a jury at a documentary festival and the pair were well known in kind of cinephile circles and the Paris cultural scene and were sitting as jury members and had seen a variety of films and dealing with the effects of modernity on Africa at the time and Jean Roche was a filmmaker and anthropologist and Edgar was a philosopher and sociologist and I I can kind of hear the groans already really because you know I'm wondering really how can this really be an entertaining film at all but The pair decided, um, you know, the pair kind of sat down really and kind of wanted to kind of take the kind of concept of the films that had seen about Africa and apply it to a more familiar country, i.e. France, where they lived. And the country was going, undergoing a seismic shift from post-World War to the modern country that was still a superpower. And how did it kind of reconcile the notion of liberty when it still maintained colonies and was at the time kind of... Time of filming anyway involved with a brutal insurgency in algeria i mean see um battle of algiers for more on that one and france was becoming a consumerist culture with modern forms of industry and i think you know, feel like kind of Jacques tatty's 1947 film jean de Fette, kind of suggest that france will be just fine without modernity but in reality it's almost impossible to escape and come 1960 france was very much a country in a transitional phase and was ripe for making a film about how these changes were affecting the people of that country and Maroon and Roche wanted to make a film about life itself using interviews with ordinary people from a variety of different backgrounds, using a similar style of that kind of direct cinema pioneers like D.A. Pennebaker and the May Sales brother. And originally the film was going to be called How Do You Live with the idea being that Rochman would find some subjects and through a series of questions, get an idea of how the subjects felt about their lives, not just kind of material issues such as money, but also kind of more deeper philosophical issues. And with no script and quite a vague premise, the film found funding almost immediately, quite strangely. And the pair set off to on the streets and to find their subjects. And cinema vérité, I suppose, in this kind of new style of French cinema was about to be born. Now, the film begins with Moron and Roche and a young girl called Marceline discussing the premise of the film. And the pair kind of want to know if they can capture reality in film, even though people will know that they are being filmed and therefore will change the way they behave and Marcian confides to being nervous and, and Roach kind of assures of that anything she says that she doesn't like to be taken out now I think that's quite a telling moment really in the film because what if Marlon says something and then seconds later decides that she could say the same thing again only better and surely the experiment would fail as the apparent reality would in effect be a different take but you know, this, I suppose it's just one of the kind of the Nuggets of kind of thought you can have about Chronicle of Southern, and I think already it's apparent that Chronicle of Southern is a film like no other. It's a film that looks at film itself, constantly asking questions, not only about itself but also of its subjects. And it it might find a deeper truth, or it may not. And it kind of it may unite its participants in a feeling of shared accomplishment, or it just might make have them kind of end up making barb remarks about each other as does actually happen. But Roach and Marine travel around spending time with a variety of subjects, sometimes from just letting them speak, other times engaging with them themselves, and what emerges of them seems that are funny, some shocking, and others outright dull, to be perfectly honest. And from African uh, immigrant workers to factory workers, all are asked about their thoughts on subjects ranging from war in Algeria to what they think of their jobs. And Chronicle mm-hmm. stuff doesn't really have a story as such, it meanders from people to people, from scenario to scenario, without a kind of a clear narrative, I suppose, it begs the question, what exactly is Chronicle of the Summer really about? And Chronicle of the Summer really doesn't have a story as such, it just meanders from people to people, from scenario to scenario. And for some, I think that kind of this, this, this may be a little bit too much to bear, but I think it begins with kind of a simple question, really, which is kind of, are you happy? And in some respects, I could answer this question with an authoritative yes, and in other respects, no. And the fact that it's so unspecific allows for a great vast degree of interpretation to the person answering it and it's exactly how Conor a summer kind of gets going when Marcel and a friend take a tape recorder and start asking some passers-by. Now, some people kind of run off, clearly a little perturbed by the situation, others are slightly more forthcoming and one man is unhappy that his sister has died at age 44 another tells them that his wife has just died and one woman says it depends on how much money she has and Soon, have the interview subjects become more candid? And mechanic tells how he cheats the books, and you know, life is hard, and he has to do it in order to survive. And we come across a girl called Mary Lou, who, by far and wide, is the most annoying actual person in the film. And she confesses kind of sleeping around in order to find some kind of comfort. Although, I, I really do kind of think that Mary Lou is—I um, I don't know—I think she might be, have been pursuing an acting career because um, she's pretty. It, 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 it almost feels scripted. Um, and in kind of like, um, I suppose, Goddard style is waiting here for t- to call someone kind of fascist or a-, a communist or something irritating like that. But I suppose as the film progresses and moves around France, the kitchen begins to emerge of young people that w- was kind of a little bit kind of familiar to the world I live in. You know, firstly, my friends and I don't smoke anywhere near as much as the people do in this film, but the kind of subjects and the kind of lives that lead were quite familiar, you know, jobs that people hate, regrets about relationship, kind of differing political views, you know, kind of... Especially kind of around the kind of the kind of contentious war going on in Algeria, and obviously kind of we have kind of Iran and Iraq now. I'm sorry, Iraq and um, Afghanistan and Syria and whatnot. And Chronicle of Solan was made seemingly at a time of great change when kind of France was on the cusp of something profound, and yet it is eerily the same kind of change we always appear to be kind of going through. And apart from what people are wearing i think the people and the issues that they are living in this film really don't differ that much from from what goes on today I, it really did amazed me and i think it kind of fascinated me in the way that you kind of really realised that throughout life it is kind of perpetually seems to be on this kind of brink of kind of huge change and on reflection um i don't think there's ever been a time where we haven't always been kind of undergoing this kind of huge huge change and it's not getting older it just seems more like there's always something going on in my life and the wider world that seems to be happening rather than everything just kind of staying still and calming down and i suppose that's kind of that is life as we know it that is how it goes on and chronicle of summer seems to capture a place in time when with these young people who about seem to be kind of about to be part of something either kind of personally or culturally and and I suppose that, that's what I make of Chronicles. It's a film about life and living. And I know that sounds kind of incredibly vague, but it it just seems that the kind of generation after generation afterwards you know, from this film have all been kind of going through the same thing. And I guess it's kind of hard really to kind of pick out kind of individual scenes. But there is one, I think, really kind of extraordinary sequence when kind of Marceline is walking through the Palace of Concord and we have pretty found out that she's Jewish and that she was sent to a concentration camp Um, because we see the obviously the kind of tattoo on her arm and she tells a rather haunting and tragic story of how her father was taken and murdered by the Nazis and the camera tracks away from her inside what looks like a kind of a huge kind of warehouse and it is a kind of a brutally tragic moment and it's kind of apparent from this that kind of obviously Marcela's been scarred for life from it and I, I found it to be really the kind of the standout moment of the film and yet at the end of the film her fellow participants actually kind of suggest that it's the least genuine moment in the entire film. and actually question whether or not she's acting and suddenly the whole kind of point of the film is is, is placed into question. And Roche and Marin kind of reflect on what they've done at the end of the film. And there's no kind of backslapping. slapping. The pair are actually a little downhearted. And the, the fact that the people in their film have kind of fallen out and actually kind of began to kind of question... Uh, how each other have actually behaved and I I think it's a kind of an incredibly profound moment in a a film because it's a type of candidness that you only get in kind of commentaries perhaps and and perhaps even then that they're not as kind of brutally honest as they are this and I I think this is kind of key to really understanding the spirit in which this film has been made and perhaps how best to view it which is it's not about narrative or character development it's a film about experimenting with film and it's it's very much a kind of a case of take you know you can take out of it what you wish and kind of experiments are conducted in the spirit that you don't necessarily think that they're going to be a success and i i think this film is very experimental in nature by virtue of the fact that it's the it, it the people that are making it are fully aware and open to the fact that it might be a failure and that's you know, think of another film that is that bold, I, I certainly can't, and yeah, you know, I just want to kind of talk a little bit kind of the technicalities of the film, because l- like the films of kind of Pennebaker and myself, you know, Chronicles of the Summer was shot on lightweight portable cameras, and this invention, it's one of the most important in the history of cinema, and it, you know, it allowed cameras to get out, literally get out there in the streets, and get amongst people, and today, you know, filmmakers try and artificially create this look, and when you, when I think about films made prior to this, and uh, you know, with their kind of that polished aesthetic and camera wobble would be considered a mistake, and here it just happens because the camera just happens to be moving out. It has a fluidity to it that seems almost amateurish, yet totally in keeping in the spirit of what they're trying to do in the film. And the film actually had three directors of photography, and um, I don't know kind of who did what and. But I think it kind of—that's pretty very much kind of in keeping with the attitude. That, that again, this kind of the, the the ethos behind this film. You, know, I, I should imagine, it was kind of a pick-up and film, and whoever happened to be about to film, you know, was the director of photography for that day. But despite its claims of reality in this look, you know, look carefully, and you will see that kind of Chronicle Summer regularly cheats a little. And there are shot reverse shots at time that are impossible due to the fact that we cannot see two cameras, and the space where the camera should be on the reverse is actually being occupied by other people or a wall, and. In one scene, we have kind of, we cut to an alarm clock, then a shot of someone waking up, and then a wider shot of their mother walking in. And it may be quite crude, but it's it's as planned a shot sequence as anything you will ever see. It just kind of beg the question, why? And I believe that the answer lies in the fact that, quite simply, the language and grammar of film are simply too hard to disregard. I, I, I think people kind of, almost are kind of, they're indoctrinated into filming that and cutaways and reaction shots are a stabler of film. And I personally believe that although there is actually no point to these shots in the films and to the learned eye seems to contradict what the apparent quest of the filmmakers for reality. But this degree of artifice has, has always existed in documentary and even more so today with major, I mean, you have huge amounts of graphic and CGI sequences and do these moments really kind of, are they are really that important? I would contest no. And, um, it's something you and and I will be discussing quite soon in a Masters Cinema episode, um, Salesman. And I think we'll be going to this point in a lot in a lot more detail. And um, I um I don't think it makes Chronicle of Summer kind of disingenuous. I don't think that, you know, somehow the filmmakers are being hypocritical saying, Look at this reality we're going for, yet we're still gonna use all these shots, you know, kind of shot reverse shots and kind of make a kind of a traditional looking film and If anything, it's a type of filmmaking language, which is the stable of these kind of MTV and other kind of crappy channels today. These kind of like these kind of reality, fake reality documentaries. And, you know, you see it all all the time. And I don't know how much these films are. Well, it interests me to to think that a kind of a film like this could kind of because the natural evolution of the kind of the Dharma documentary style is that kind of crap, I mean like, you know, Made in Chelsea, or whatever the fuck it is, you know, the only way is Essex, I don't fucking know, I don't, I don't even watch them, but uh, yeah, you know, in, in terms of this film's legacy, I, I don't think it's really kind of worth, kind of thinking about too much, but I think Chronicle of Someone, belongs in a small category of films, that has a kind of a place in film history, that cannot really be denied, it is a work that has to be seen, with history in mind, and, even the simplicity of interviewing someone in the street was a novelty then, you know, it seems so, it's a stable now of kind of news and documentary but you know, it really was, a, you know, people simply didn't do it then and I I won't lie and say it's one of my favourite films, I wouldn't make some claim that you, you have to see it, however, I would say it's a film that, um, as an interesting experiment in film itself, um, is worth checking out and definitely watching and um, I'm glad Criterion have put this out as well because it does come with some decent features. There's a 75-minute documentary um, about the making of it, There's some new interviews um, with, um, uh, with Roach and Marceline and there's some new interviews as well and a very interesting booklet. So overall I thought that was um, a pretty good month for Criterion. I'm going to have to go with my pick of the month with On the Waterfront. I think it's one of those packages which is it simply um it's simply too good it's it's faultless in fact i would say it's arguably um one of the best uh releases they've ever put out and i know it's one of those films that probably everyone owns but to me this is now the definitive version of it so i hope you enjoyed this episode there will be another one very shortly i'm gonna break it up a little bit with um a bond um, recording and like I said, I was going to do this whole Criterion one in one kind of big episode, but it was just too long, and I, th- I think everyone would get a little bit bored. So um, we will do a uh, the next up in the Bond uh, retrospective, which is A View to a Kill, and then that'll be out on that'll just be out on the blog, so it won't be coming out on the feed. And then I'll put out another one of these, and I've got another little um, close up episode in the boiler as well. So. Okay, so that's going to be it. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can email me, 24framescast at gmail.com. Do keep up the emails. I really do enjoy getting them and conversing with you all. Follow, my, Have a look at my other podcast with Joachim Theson, which is the Masters of Cinema Cast, in which we go through the films of the Masters of Cinema Collection. And you can find us over on iTunes, and you can find us at masterscinemacast.blogspot.com. And also, of course, my the, the blog for this, 24framescast.blogspot.com. So that's going to be it. I'll be in contact soon. Bye.